desire to follow along. Matthew chapter 16. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Father, we pray, Lord, that this time we've set aside for You would be fruitful. I pray that there would be no confusion, that each one of us would hear something that would encourage, strengthen, and edify us so that we might be conformed to the image of Your Son. In Jesus' name, Amen. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21, Jesus is talking to His disciples, and it says in verse 21 that from that time forth He began to show unto His disciples how that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed and then be raised again the third day. As you can see in the next verse, this shocked the disciples. Peter grabs him, pulls him aside, and it says that he rebuked Jesus and says that no way is this going to happen. And Peter begins to say how he's going to lay his life down, that there's no way he would allow that to happen to Jesus. And then the next verses, we see that Jesus goes right back and he's explaining Peter, you don't understand that I have to go and be killed. This is my purpose for coming. Now the question arises, why would that offend Peter so much? Why would it shock him? He's a close friend of Jesus, maybe the closest. He's been walking with him for years now. They've had so many uh, private conversations, public teachings. Why would it shock Peter to learn that not only is Jesus going to go be killed, he knows about it, and yet he's still going there. You have to put yourself in the mind, in the shoes of one of these Jewish people 2,000 years ago, they'd been reading their Bible and they knew of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And the, many of the prophecies speak of him as a leader that is going to crush his enemies. And Peter's waiting for that. He expects, he thinks that Jesus is going to put down Rome. And here's the, the thing you run into. The Old Testament, it does have prophecies that paint him that way, a lot of them. But there's also places like Isaiah 53 that paint him as a suffering servant being tortured. There's Daniel chapter 9 that even tells us he's going to be killed for the people. So how do you put these two together? You start to learn here in the Gospels that there's going to be two different appearances of the Messiah. That the first time he comes, he is going to allow himself to be grabbed hold of and put on that cross so that he can pay the penalty for sin. But then he is going to, as he said here, he's going to rise the third day, and he's going to come back. And you get to that when you get to verse 27. Jesus tells these disciples, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father. They think that's going to happen at any minute. With his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Think of that. If you were standing there and Jesus just said the word, some of you guys standing here, you're not going to die until you see what? This thing that Peter's obviously looking for, the Son of Man coming in his glory where he's going to set up rain. And Jesus just said, some of you guys will not die until you see that. Now that's the end of chapter 16. People close their book. They've read their chapter for the day and we go to bed. And usually we forget about what we have read when we get up the next morning. See, these 
chapter breaks in the Bible, of course, were not in until a thousand years later. Men, and it's a good thing that they did, otherwise you'd spend, you'd still be looking for Matthew 16:21, if we had to tell you where to find that verse without the numbers. But by putting those numbers in there, people make the assumption that what happened in chapter 16 is split apart, it's separate from chapter 17. Look at the first verse in chapter 17. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them. For 2,000 years, mostly, people have read this and think, this is a different subject, we're on to something new. I mean, after all, six days passed, the Bible tells us, and now they're getting a picture of Jesus being transfigured, and we get a warm, fuzzy feeling because they saw him in this bright light, this white cloud, and then something spoke out of the cloud that said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And we just separate them thinking, Peter, James, and John, those guys got to see something pretty neat. They saw Jesus in kind of his glory. And we don't even connect it to the previous two verses where Jesus said, there's going to be some of you standing here that you're not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, there's people that think that not only is Jesus a liar, but that the Bible's got a flaw in it because those disciples are all dead and he still hasn't come back in his glory. Right? He must be hit. The Bible kind of got that one wrong. We'll just, we'll just turn the page quick, teach on something else because the Bible got that one wrong and we don't, we don't want to admit it wrong. The Bible got it perfect. Those men, Peter, James, and John, what did they get to see with their eyes? He took them up into a high mountain. It's a picture of Jesus going up back into his glory and he was transfigured before them. What's that word mean? In the Greek, it is the word the metamorphosis. What do we, as 21st century people, what do we associate that word metamorphosis with? As soon as you're in school, they teach you about this caterpillar. He goes and he makes a cocoon, closes himself in. He's not seen for a while. What happens the next time you see him? Completely changed. It's not even recognizable from what went into the cocoon. And that's the Greek word here. What those disciples saw was a complete metamorphosis. What did they see? Look at the next words. Verse 2. His face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Now see, we read that. And we, we always think, well, this is what happens anytime an angel appears in the Bible, or Jesus, or, or God. So there's some vision of God. People fall down, it's so bright they can't see. It's true. But why is that in this verse? Because Jesus told them, some of you standing here will not taste death until what? He didn't say until you experience His second coming. Until some of you see the Son of Man coming in His glory. They are getting that picture. He took them up on a mountain. He took these three aside. They went with him. And all of a sudden, as Jesus is standing there and he's praying, it says his face starts to shine as the sun. Now, this last summer, fall, we got a pretty good explanation of, or an example here. The day we had this eclipse, it totally eclipsed. You could look 
with your naked eyes directly toward the sun. It's remarkable. It's the only time in your life that will ever happen to you, very likely. It lasted for about three minutes. What happened the, the two seconds before it was completely eclipsed? You had to shield your eye. You had to look at it with some mechanism to filter out the light. And then as soon as it was covered, you could see the ring around the moon. And the first ray of light that came out from behind that moon as the sun started to shine again, even though it was the tiniest sliver, the first ray of light to come out, I will that experience will forever be with me. Instantly, we had to, you had to turn away with the tiniest ray of light. Not the full sun. Just the smallest sliver of it. It was that bright. Jesus standing there, his face begins to shine, as it says, the brightness of the sun. His clothes glowing as white. Now, what is this picture? What are they looking at? It's exactly what Jesus told them. This is the vision of what he's going to look like when? The next time this whole earth sees him. Keep a finger right here. Turn to Second Thessalonians with me. Second Thessalonians talks a lot about Jesus coming back again. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> and look at verse 8. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed. And that's talking about the Antichrist. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The New Testament teaches that when Jesus comes back, he is going to destroy the wicked one with just the brightness of his coming. You know, as earth dwellers, we, we get a sense of that anytime there's a bright sunny day. You simply cannot even look at the sun. Some of those days you can't even look kind of near it. It's that bright. And this, the reason we came to this is just to confirm what the Bible says about the next time Jesus comes. He, it's going to be a light show. Bright. And Revelation tells us that he's going to be riding this white horse with a crown on his head. Many crowns. And a name written on his thigh. And he's going to be wearing a vesture, his clothes that are dipped in blood. Back to Matthew 17. He takes them to this mountain. They go up. And we didn't even talk about this. Why would he take these three guys? Remember, you're, you're looking at a guy behind the pulpit who happens to think that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. Why does it tell us he took Peter, James, and John? Why these three guys? You know that in your Bible, when Jesus went to a resurrection when he went to raise someone from the dead, these three guys are always there. Jairus' daughter, it even tells us he put everybody out, except he allowed Peter, James, and John to go with him and watch him raise this girl from the dead. What are they witnessing here on this mountain? They're getting a picture of what Jesus will look like when? other side of death. After he pays the penalty for sin, they put him in the tomb and he is resurrected. This is what he's going to look like. His glorified body. Everything in here is for a reason. 
Verse 3, Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now what are these disciples looking at? His face started to shine like the sun. Clothes turns bright white. And now they see two guys that are talking to him. I had this thought. This is 2,000 years ago. There weren't photographs. There weren't videos. There probably weren't even very good of artist renditions. How would they identify Moses and Elijah? I don't doubt it. The Bible says they knew it. But how it's obviously important for us, the reader, to know something. Why is Moses and Elijah seen standing there talking with Jesus? How would the disciples even know that? We don't know that. We do know that God did reveal to them that's Moses and that's Elijah. Now look at this picture. What is the significance of these two guys? We already know that Jesus is showing them a picture of His second coming. Remember how all this started. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples were shocked. This idea of Him coming twice it hadn't even occurred to them. All they knew is He's here. He's going to be setting up His kingdom here. Now. Jesus was trying to tell them it's not happening right now. Because later in that conversation, He says, Settle down. Some of you standing here, you will not die until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And the next chapter starts with that scene. Him showing a vision, a picture of what it's going to look like the next time this whole world lays eyes on Him. Now, He has Moses and Elijah. What's the significance? Let's think for a second. Put your Bible cap on. Moses' life. Turn with me to, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 34. The last chapter in Deuteronomy. And let's learn something about when Moses dies. Deuteronomy 34. Oh, that's right. In verse 1, Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto Mount Nebo over against Jericho, and the Lord showed him all the land. Moses was not allowed to go where? Into the promised land. Remember that? He did. I mean, he was an amazing guy, an amazing person. It would seem almost there would be more miracles at the hand of Moses through God than anybody in the Old Testament. And yet, it does tell us. He disobeyed God this one time and God got angry. And he told him, Moses, because of that, you can't go into the promised land. That was the entire reason for Moses' existence was to get the nation out of slavery in Egypt. The plagues came. The water was turned to blood. The death of the firstborn. He, Pharaoh finally lets them go. He brings the kids, the children of Israel out and they're going to the promised land where they're supposed to be. And yet, Moses isn't allowed to go in there. You know why Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying? Because the next chapter is Joshua, where they go into the land. But before they can all go in, somebody has to say goodbye to this earth. Moses is not allowed to go in. So, Deuteronomy ends with God taking Moses up on a mountain. Maybe it was that same mountain where Jesus was. We'll get to that. And he shows him, God shows him a, a miraculous vision and he looks through all the land. In June, on June, May, it was May 31st maybe. Wife and I stood on this mountain, we think. At least that's what the tour guides tell you. Anyway, it's pretty dang close. And you really can. You, on a clear day, you can see from this mountain that's not even in Israel and you can see almost the entire country. It's that small. On a clear day, you can see 26 miles to Jerusalem. You can see it because you're up on this huge mountain. Moses goes up there and God shows him. 
And he says, you've worked this your whole life. The people you've led, they're going in there, but you can't go. He shows Moses the promised land. And then the Bible tells us God buried Moses. He died. There's something interesting here. Look at verse 7, Deuteronomy 34. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. Did Moses die because of old age? He did not. But the Bible goes out of its way to tell us. Because his eye was not dim. His natural force was not abated. He was a strong cat. And yet God had him die at exactly 120 years. That's not by coincidence. There's nothing coincidence in the Bible. So what's 120 years? Because remember what we're looking at. What does Moses' life, what's it a picture of? It's a picture of people trying to get where? to the promised land. He's taken them out of slavery. He's taken them through baptism, the Red Sea, where the water goes over and destroys their past. It's a picture of every human being trying to get to heaven. And they come up short. I'm not saying that they don't get there, but they don't in their lifetime. Moses was supposed to be there, but through disobedience, through sin... He was not allowed. He didn't get there. The next day, after Moses dies, they mourn for him, but they start preparations. They're going in. So as soon as Moses' life is over, what happens? You get a picture of people going into the promised land. Moses' life represents every human being that has ever lived from Adam up until the rapture, up until Jesus comes back. It's a picture of people who live their life on this earth through sin, through heartbreak, through overcoming odds, through disappointments, through every human emotion and existence. But their life ends before they get into the promised land. There's something about this 120 years. Go to Genesis chapter 6. There's something interesting. When This is a different story. Don't get confused, but Noah's time. When God is going to destroy the whole earth, He tells Noah something about man. This is amazing. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. God tells this to Noah. The Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man. I'm not going to put up with him forever. It says, His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now that's strange. This is really strange considering you're in Genesis 5 and 6 where people were living to be 929 years old. 987. There's 969, Methuselah. And why would he mention that man's days are only going to be 120? Because what happens after the flood? Men, their lifespans come down drastically until now in our time. You ever heard of anybody living past 120? Maybe. And if you did, that person probably lived in a place where they didn't even have birth certificates. Seriously. People don't live past 120. They get close. There's always somebody 116, 117. You read it in the news all the time that the oldest person just died. They don't live past 120. God put it here in the Bible about 6,000 years before that said 
not going to allow people to live past 120 years. Moses' life represents human beings on this earth that live all the way up until just short of going into the promised land. Who's the second guy in that picture with Jesus in Matthew 17? Moses and there's Elijah. What do we know about Elijah's life? Another very strange, amazing individual. This guy called down fire from heaven. Not just on altars, sometimes on people. He shut up the heavens so that it wouldn't rain for three and a half years once. This guy had miracles also like Moses. But what's, what does his life look like? Anybody remember, how, do was, how did Elijah leave this earth? Elijah was walking one day with his protege, his, the person he is training, Elisha. And the Bible tells us that a chariot of fire comes down out of heaven it scoops up Elijah and it takes him to heaven alive. Elijah didn't even die. He did not taste death. So what's his life represent? Remember what we're looking at. A picture of Jesus at his second coming. One group of people represented by Moses are all those people that they die before they get to the promised land. But Elijah's life are people represented as people who are living on this earth. And as it says in Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians also, that those of us that are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to meet him in the clouds forever. When Jesus comes back to this earth, there will be two groups of people with him. One are the people that died. Their bodies are in the ground. And the Bible tells us that the first thing that happens when that trumpet blows is those graves come open and those bodies go to meet the Lord in the air forever. And it says, the Bible tells us in the next split second, that those of us who are still alive and believers, Christians, we are right after them and we are caught up to meet Him in the clouds forever. Elijah left this earth that way. He didn't die. He was caught up to heaven. Back to Matthew 17 now. Matthew 17. Let's start at verse 1 again and get this picture. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John. Guys, he always took for resurrections. And he bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was metamorphosized. He was transfigured. He was changed. They saw something in him that was changed. We should go look at something. Keep your finger there. 1 Corinthians. It uses the same word. In 1 Corinthians 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, the same word that was just in Matthew 17, where it says that he was changed, he was transfigured before them. The same Greek word is used here. Paul is talking about the resurrection of the saints. And in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means that's a Bible way of saying we're not all going to die. Some of us are going to be alive when Jesus comes. 
Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's the same word. He's talking about that before we are, we can live with Jesus forever, what has to happen to this? See, this is perishable. This thing gets closer to death every hour, every second. It's always, it's getting closer to death. For us to live forever with Jesus, this thing has to be changed, metamorphosized, and that's what this whole, this chapter is about. Paul goes on to say that this corruptible has to put on incorruptible. We know those verses, don't we? It's the same words here. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, he's talking about this time, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Two groups of people. He said the dead shall be raised. Those are the people that look like Moses. They lived their lives and they did not live bodily to make it into heaven, the promised land. Moses died right before they go in. Then there's that guy Elijah who was taken bodily. He was living. He was breathing when he was taken to heaven. And that's what Paul says here. We are not all going to die. Some of us are just going to change right here in the twinkling of an eye, boom, as we go meet the Lord in the air. It's amazing. And this is the word that's used, that metamorphosis, that little worm, that caterpillar, kind of ugly thing, and that's what we all are. We go in in that cocoon, and it gets wrapped, and it disappears for a little while, and then it comes out as something amazing. This all happens, as Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. We are going to be changed and receive our heavenly bodies. We read this at funerals. And we should, because it's a, this is that's a step in this process. But back in Matthew 17, he's talking about this same idea, and nobody's dying. Jesus just said, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the next verse, he shows them that picture. Peter, James, and John got to see what Jesus will look like after he is resurrected. We're now, we follow this down. Since we just mentioned that, I want to skip over something and look down at verse 9 in Matthew 17. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them saying, tell the vision to no man when? Until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Why would he tell them? Don't tell anybody what you saw until after I'm raised from the dead. Why would he say that? A couple of things that jump into my mind. Number one is the rest of this world is like those disciples. When Jesus said, I'm going to go and, and be crucified, they rebuked him. They couldn't even understand the idea that he was going to die, be resurrected, and then come back a second time. He tells them, don't tell anybody about the vision that you saw until after I am raised from the dead. Then they were instructed, tell everybody what you saw. We saw, we know what he looks like. We saw him, his face shone like the sun. We couldn't even look at him. Because now that's what the world is supposed to expect to see the next time Jesus comes. What, did they, what if they would have told everybody that vision before he was dead and resurrected? It would have painted the picture of him setting up his kingdom in his glory now. He didn't want that. Jesus wanted them 
to let him go to the cross. When Peter pulled out that sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you know who was there? Peter, James, and John. And Peter is going to keep them from taking Jesus. He does not allow that. Put your sword back. Jesus is not against swords, people. But not that time. He had to go to the cross to pay the penalty. Once he does, no human being will ever grab hold of him again to try to handle him. Never. Next time anybody sees him, he is going to be bright as the sun. Revelation 19 tells us that his eyes are like a flame of fire. It always paints the picture after his resurrection, the sun, brightness, fire. That's what we're going to see the next time he comes. And Jesus said, don't tell anybody what you saw until after I've been crucified and resurrected. Then go tell the whole dadgum world because I'm coming. Let's go back up to verse 5. While he yet spake, and it's Peter who's doing the talking. In verse 4, Peter said, Lord, we could make some tabernacles for you, Moses and Elijah. Verse 5 says, While he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud. This is getting weirder by the minute. Which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Wow. There is something that is written, and this happens a lot in the Bible. Not everything about this story is contained right here. Not everything about Moses' life was contained back in Deuteronomy. Not everything about Elijah's life was contained back in 2 Kings. You know when Elijah shut up the heavens and he didn't allow it to rain? In that story in the Old Testament, it doesn't tell you how long it lasted. You get the New Testament. And even Jesus says that Elijah shut up the heavens for three and a half years. You put the whole Bible together and you get the whole story. Same thing here. Who was on that mountain with Jesus? Peter, James, and John. Those guys wrote epistles. Let's go to 2 Peter because he said something about this event. 2 Peter. 2 Peter back there toward the end. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And starting at verse 16, there's some information here that Peter includes. And if you read carefully, and if you let the Holy Spirit guide you into what you're reading, it circles back and it connects back to Matthew 17, what we're reading, that transfiguration up on the mountain. Here we are in verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. We're not following stories. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The people that saw Jesus the first time walking on the shores of Galilee when he was here before he was crucified, there were most times he probably did not stick out. Other than the thousands of people following him, his clothes weren't shining, he probably wasn't 6'7", he probably wasn't marine looking, he was average, normal person. You couldn't pick him out. What is Peter talking about here when he says, we saw his majesty? We saw his 
majesty. Could anybody tell of his majesty? No, he looked, people thought in some ways he was lowly. This is the carpenter's son. So what's Peter talking about? Look at verse 17. For he, Jesus, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. There came a voice. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's Peter talking about? He is describing the day Peter, James, and John saw him transfigured on that mount. Look at the next verse, verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him, where? In the holy mount. Peter is describing that day that he, James and John, saw Jesus transfigured. He was changed into what he will look like on the other side of the resurrection. That bright glory. That shining as the sun. It made them fall on their faces. Fear for their life. Something else I want to point out before we leave this right here. Because some people at this point may be saying, you really think that the transfiguration is a picture of Jesus coming back? I mean, it doesn't just come out and say it. Jesus didn't just say, quote, this was a picture of me coming in the clouds. Peter says it. Look at verse 16. It says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and what? The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the eyewitness account of Peter. What did Peter think he was looking at? Peter was convinced that he was looking at a picture of Jesus coming in his glory. Right? You alright with that? We're not making anything up. Peter says, we saw his majesty, his power, and the picture of what he's going to look like when he is coming back. Can you, now let's put our, put ourselves in Peter's sandals that day. Remember, Peter had just said, there's no way, we're not allowing you to go to Jerusalem. You will not be killed. Not on our watch. Nobody's going to handle you and nobody's going to put nails in you. It won't happen. Jesus has to tell him. It has to happen this time. I have to go pay the penalty for sin. And Then Jesus says, but some of you guys standing here, you will not taste death until you see, or before you see the Son of Man coming in His glory. And People have read that and we thought, Jesus is a liar. I mean, he, he got it wrong. Those disciples all died and Jesus didn't come back. It's not what Jesus said. He said, you guys, before you die, you're going to see a vision of me coming in my glory. And that's what they saw. Six days later, he took Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain. And the Bible says he was transfigured. His body was changed right there in front of them. And they saw it. Years later, Peter sits down and through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, writes 2 Peter and he says, when we were there on the mountain, we heard that voice come out of the cloud that said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter describes it as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This earth, there's a lot of people on this earth that don't have a problem that Jesus was here with the fact that Jesus was here the first time. We have more evidence that Jesus was here than Julius Caesar 
than pick any Napoleon, anybody. The whole world knew he was here. Thousands of people followed him daily. The Bible paints the picture that he had to sneak away. He and the disciples had to sneak away sometimes just to get something to eat. There were that many people following him. We would have been doing it too. People were getting healed, raised from the dead, demons cast out of them. Their lives were being made whole. Everybody wanted to touch this person. He changed the world in such a manner that to this day we keep track of time by what happened 2,000 years ago. That's how big of of an event, an impact his life made on the earth. For the first, say, 20 years after Jesus was here, people were, were in stunned silence thinking about what had just been here. 200 years after he had been here, they're still talking about it. And they're still talking, we're 208 years past when Jesus died. We're 2017 years. 2017 years. The entire universe keeps track of time based on an event that came into this earth 2,000 years ago. A carpenter and his espoused wife had a son. It was a miracle. And when he grew up, he walked on the water, he healed the sick, he voluntarily crawled up on a cross to be crucified. But there's something more to that. He told everybody around him he's coming back again. And that's the part you don't hear of in a lot of churches. People that we, we want to talk all the time, be nice to your neighbor. He's, he said, treat your neighbor nice. Even if she borrows things from you, you be nice to your neighbor. And we hear sermon after sermon on that. And we need that. But he said more things than that. He promised he was coming back. And this time, when he comes back, he's going to consume the wicked with the brightness of his coming. Something tells me we should be on alert for that. That that should be on the lips of his people. The thought that, you know what? This guy's coming back. And nobody's grabbing a hold of him. Nobody's going to whip him, scourge him, put handcuffs on him. You're not going to put thorns on his head. No, sir. He's going to destroy evil and those that practice it. That, that's another three hours. But that's what the Bible says. Everybody has this picture of Jesus that, well, we always read about him in the Gospels as he was nice. He put his hands on somebody and he scratched their little fuzzy red head and he, he healed some people. Well, he might have done, he did that, yes. And he will, he still has that wonderful power. But when he comes back, he's expecting people to have read his book that says, change your ways because when I come back, I expect you to have made a decision about my life. And if you haven't, It doesn't paint a great picture. The Bible speaks of, now that we know the terror of the Lord, that we are supposed to fear the idea that we would be on the wrong side of Him. Now, the Bible does call us, we are kinsmen to Him. We're brothers and sisters. You are if you've made that decision. Absolutely. But if a person hasn't, the Bible doesn't paint the same picture. It doesn't have nice, cuddly, soft words to say paints the picture that the worst of the worst possible is coming to that person. That's what the Bible says. It's perfect. It's true. There's not a jot or a tittle in here that is off. Not even 
by a smidge. And it was written thousands and thousands of years, different authors all put together, and none of it's in contradiction. It's amazing. Let's pray. Father, we pray, Lord, that each one of us would go from here strengthened and encouraged in you, that we would be a bolder Christian, that we would carry your word, your vision for this earth, so that as you taught us to pray, that your kingdom would come. Lord, we pray especially for Pastor and Tiff that you keep, guard, and protect them. Shower them with earthly blessings and with spiritual blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.